Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Anti-Semitic hate crimes have been on the rise in New York City. In fact, the NYPD says they're the most common type of hate crime in the Big Apple. Reverend Brett Younger is the senior minister at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights, and Serge Lip is the senior rabbi at Brooklyn Heights Synagogue. Brett and Serge are with me in the studio to talk about the rise of anti-Semitism in New York City and the role they think progressive communities of faith should play in combating acts of hate. Brett, thanks so much for coming in. Delighted to be here. Serge, thank you. Terrific. So, Brett, let me start with you. Tell us about your career and what brought you to Plymouth Church. I'm at Plymouth Church uh, because three years ago I turned 55 and wanted to do something different from being a Baptist preacher in the South. Um, I grew up in Mississippi where my father uh, was a Southern Baptist pastor, and I had slowly stopped believing a lot of things, uh, that the earth is 6,000 years old, that women should be quiet, that gay people should stop being gay, uh, that my Jewish friends are going to burn in hell. So I've been moving to the left politically and religiously for all of my adult life. But I started so far to the right, I still have plenty of room. So I'm in New York because most of the churches I served were filled with people who were part of the church because it was the easy thing to do. And now I'm delighted to be in a church filled with people who are part of the church, even though it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, so how different is life for you at Plymouth Church now? I have a friend, when we told him that we were moving from Atlanta, Georgia, to uh, Brooklyn, New York. He said, why are you doing that? I said, well, I just have to do something different. And he said, I think you're overshooting. And some days it feels like we overshot, but we're, um, we love being part of a, a culture that's alive and vibrant and interesting and constantly challenging. Our, our congregation is more diverse than I am used to in a lot of uh, fascinating ways. We are we're in a culture that doesn't prop up religious institutions, and so we have to pay attention to the essentials. And I think that's been really – it's been good for me in my own spiritual life, and it has helped me think about why this stuff matters. What's been the greatest lesson you've learned since coming to Brooklyn, would you say? There are the universal things. People do want their lives to have some meaning, and they do want a sense of community um, and in, in a city of 8 million, there are an awful lot of lonely people who are still searching for those things. And as a minister of a church, rather than having to give all my life to propping up the institutional concerns, I get to spend more of it trying to help people find their way to a better life and more of a sense of family. What a church to end up in, though, Plymouth Church, with a very, very rich history. We really do. The, the, I'm delighted to tell about our, our church's history. The first minister at Plymouth was the abolitionist, uh, Henry Ward Beecher, started this inclusive, progressive ministering community. Plymouth Church was known as the Grand Central Depot of the Underground Railroad. We hid enslaved people in our church basement. Uh, Branch Rickey prayed in my office to decide whether he was willing to give Jackie Robinson a contract to integrate baseball. Martin Luther King Jr. preached an early version of his I Have a Dream speech in in my pulpit. And so there's this long list of fascinating people who've been in our... Abraham Lincoln came twice. Mark Twain was a regular. Frederick Douglass preached there. Susan B. Anthony, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Hillary Clinton, uh, Sonia Sotomayor... 
Elliot Spitzer spoke there, though the tour guides don't usually mention that. So we have mm. this. Yeah. We, a little, we, bit, we, little bit of a different history there. A little bit there. But, we, you know, we're building on this history. We have a group called the New Abolitionists who try to build on this abolitionist history, on working on uh, trafficking issues. And we have a racial justice ministry trying to go back to the way we took that seriously. We've done some work on bail reform and educational opportunities. So... Yes, thank you for asking. We have a, an amazing history that greatly informs what we're doing now. Serge, your history starts here in the Bronx, right? You are native to this borough. I'm a native. I went to uh, public school, uh, uh, junior high school 141, Bronx Science. Um, grew up on Mashalu and then Riverdale and spent a while in Israel. Uh, went to school in Chicago uh, and uh, spent my first six years in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, in my first pulpit, and then received a call a little bit more than 22 years ago to come back to New York City and have been resident in Brooklyn Heights since then. Tell us about the Brooklyn Heights Synagogue. Brooklyn Heights Synagogue was founded in uh, the latest part of the 1950s, around Hanukkah of 1959, from people who were frankly tired of walking further outside of the neighborhood for synagogue life and held meetings and said, couldn't we have a synagogue of our own here in Yankee Brooklyn Heights? So that's how we started. We didn't really have our own buildings to begin with. Uh, we were at home in various churches, including Grace Church, where we had uh, the Episcopal Church, where we had our first office and worship. Eventually, over time, we found our way to two different buildings. We're now at 131 Remsen Street. But our home for the holidays since the mid-1980s has been Plymouth Church. In that time, uh, I'm the third full-time rabbi of the congregation. One of my predecessors, Rick Jacobs, who is now the head of the Union for Reform Judaism, challenged our congregation 36 years ago uh, to deal with the problem of homelessness in our city. I don't think anyone imagined it would continue to this day, mm. but we've been serving the needs of the homeless in New York City for 36 years. We've operated a homeless shelter in the basement of our building, uh, sometimes some years for men, some years for women, but always in the hope that there'd come a year where our, the need was eliminated. We won't have to do it anymore. How far apart are your institutions? Eight blocks. Eight blocks. I know that because come the uh, the Jewish High Holy Days, we march with our Torah scrolls, and we do this with intention. We don't want to put them in a car, so assuming the weather is good, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, myself and a group of congregants, we carry the scrolls, we process them from the synagogue to the church. When did you two first meet? I would guess it was at a Brooklyn Heights Interfaith Clergy Association meeting. Uh, Serge is very active, and, and I show up when I feel like it. Um, <laughs> and we we have preached in each other's pulpits. We did that this, this summer. Serge uh, preached in my place on a Sunday morning, and I preached at his place on a Friday night. And it was um, it, it was, was warm. It was warm, and it was a wonderful experience from my from my perspective. Uh, his people pay attention, which is uh, one you know great. And my people wanted to know why I wasn't more distinguished, like Serge. <laughs> I've been watching you two interact from the moment you walked in, and you get along famously. That shouldn't be news. <laughs> <laughs> Although I th I think it surprises people sometimes. You know, the people that you share the most in common with are the people who do 
something similar to you. Brett and I work with communities of faith. Uh, we have established congregations, and we have very similar challenges. And we have two communities that, by the way, have known each other since before we arrived. So there is a natural expectation from the members of both congregations that we work together that the congregations interact. Many of our people know each other quite well. And it only makes sense that we were driving up on the uh, the BQE and then the Bruckner. And of course, we were talking about some of the challenges in modern life in New York City, in communities of faith, how you engage members, how you get them up to speed uh, on their own inheritance. So we, we face very similar challenges, and we look to each other for ideas, and also a place sometimes just to blow off steam. Well, and not to give a too serious answer to what was a fine, fine and warm question, we share a religious heritage. People don't recognize—Christians don't recognize that near to the same degree. I think that Serge and I come to Holy Scripture, and we have some of the same hermeneutic. We have some of the same ways to interpret it. We think that Scripture calls us to be a people of justice, a people of hospitality, a people of welcome. And so we have we have religion in common. Um, and I believe that the best of my tradition comes straight out of his tradition, that um, I am a Christian because uh, Jesus was a good Jew and learned from that heritage things I need to learn from for it to have a more abundant life. Brett offered a sermon to my community in our pulpit swap on the matriarch Leah, who often kind of gets short shrift. You know, we think about Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, and then Leah gets thrown in there. And it was terrific, and it really spoke to my congregants um, in identifying with those who sometimes feel like they're the third wheel or the fifth wheel or whatever the right— Or the uh, second wife. Or the second wife, exactly right. When I preached at Plymouth, I tried a little bit of a, of a different— You showed type. more courage than I did. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to speak on a difficult topic, which is one that often in liberal, progressive, religious settings we don't do, which is what happens when you have a religious text, a biblical text that we share, that seems to endorse religious zealotry and violence. How do we respond to that? Do we just ignore the text and not read it? Or perhaps we will read it, and we will struggle with it and come to understand what else it might mean. One thing we're struggling with right now in the city is a rise in anti-Semitism. Why do you think it is, at this point in time, we're seeing this rise in anti-Semitism and hate crimes in New York City, Surge? You know, it, it's hard to say that there's a single factor, but very clearly, permission has been given at the highest levels in this country. And that sense of permission that there, it is open season to say things that used to be unacceptable to say, um, to invoke words and images that used to be held under rocks and shadows. And very bluntly, you know, the notion that some young angry people also in the New York City area, especially uh, the incidents in Borough Park over the weekend, think that it is somehow permissible or, or tolerable that they can go out in a car and hunt down people solely because they're identifiable as Jews. Uh, I am concerned the other thing that's going on is we do not have a clear, definitive, repeated statement from our elected leaders, from the NYPD, that this is not tolerated. 
And I understand there are a lot of things going on in the world right now, but the bottom line is we seem to be treating anti-Semitic incidents in New York City as quality of life crimes, and that has to change. The new police commissioner is going to need to step forward with a plan of action about how we're going to make clear uh, that harassment crimes are serious crimes and they're going to be enforced and followed up on. Do we need stiffer penalties, do you think? I'm not really sure. The many, many attorneys in my congregation, uh, magistrates, judges, I'm sure have an opinion. What I do think is that you tolerate things at your own risk. We have laws on the books. They need to be enforced. Uh, We have hate crimes laws. Um, We also have people in, in homes and on pulpits. I think that the failure to speak out about how abominable anti-Semitism is from outside the Jewish community. I said to Brett coming up in the car, anti-Semitism is often the canary in the coal mine of human civilization. It starts to show up in this manner when things are devolving, not evolving. We need to hear from Mayor de Blasio a significant speech about anti-Semitism. We need to hear from Governor Cuomo a significant statement about anti-Semitism. We need to hear from the president a clear, unambiguous, and repeated condemnation of anti-Semitism. None of those things is actually happening. And very frankly, I'd like to hear from the NYPD how they are going to deal with this. I was incredibly pleased to read over the weekend about the FBI's efforts in Pueblo, Colorado, uh, to prevent the attack on the synagogue there. Uh, It shows real effort and dedication. We need that same level of dedication here. The challenge is, of course, there was a person who had left tracks on the Internet. What are we going to do here in New York when we have people who get in a car and, I guess, just decide for fun they're going to go and hunt down people dressed as Jews? We do hear lawmakers denounce anti-Semitic attacks, but it sounds like you're just not hearing that loud enough, fair to say? I think that elected officials say all sorts of things that they think there is of necessity to get their soundbite in for the news or for the polls. I'm talking about actually standing up, taking time, and addressing this issue in more than three paragraphs, but making it clear as a human being in an elected office how terrible this is, why it's wrong, what the history is about, and why people who are not Jewish recognize anti-Semitism as a particular poison in the bloodstream of humanity. Brett, what are your thoughts on this increase that we've been seeing? Well, I do, I do th- a couple of things. One, I do think anti-Semitism, if, if you think it is a problem for Jewish people, <clears throat> then you haven't recognized the, the problem. Uh, Christians, for instance, need to see that this is a repudiation of Christianity as well as Judaism. It's an enemy for pluralism. It's an enemy for democracy. Any religious intolerance is going to breed greater intolerance. You're pretty open about ways you think Christian churches have been guilty of anti-Semitism historically, correct? Yes, and anti-Semitism predates Christianity, but there's this particularly ugly strain of anti-Semitism within the church. Twelfth uh, century, uh, Christians made up the incredibly horrible lie of blood libel, which was the idea that Jewish people murdered Christian children to use their blood. And it sounds unimaginable, but there are documented more than a hundred occasions where Christians 
massacred Jewish communities in response to the disappearance of a child. You go to Martin Luther, who may be the most important figure in the last 500 years of Christian history, who was anti-Semitic, who who wrote about uh, we are at fault for not slaying them in a treatise called The Jews and Their Lies. And what what happens is Christian historians will say Luther was great except for his anti-Semitism, which should be so embarrassing for the historians. You cannot be great and anti-Semitic. So you've got this line from Luther to to the Holocaust and centuries of Christian anti-Semitism made Hitler possible. So, yes, our, our history is embarrassing. And it's not just that we're on the wrong side of history. We're also on the wrong side of Christianity at that point. How do you combat it? I think I think the first thing is to take responsibility for it. Uh, the 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 Poway shooting in California back in April, the the church immediately put out a statement that sounds like all the churches where you know a shooter has come out of the congregation and they've talked about this isn't us, this isn't us, this isn't what we teach, this isn't. Well, there needs to be a little more self examination at that point. If someone is comfortable in your congregation being anti-Semitic, then it is who you are. And you haven't made it clear that that's not who you are. How open are the churches you're referring to, to this message that you're putting out here now? I think there's an arrogance that keeps us from recognizing our responsibility. And I would hope that it's just the, you know, the, the I think it was a Eastern Orthodox Church, the shooter in Poway was from. Not Presbyterian. Is it Pre- was it? Okay. Well, I'm thinking about another shooting, unfortunately, because I think there's such a horror about it that you don't recognize your responsibility for it. And so at some level, I hope it's just ignorance and not arrogance, um, not seeing that we're supposed to be more affirming of our own heritage. And if we forget it, there's a price to be paid. Serge, how has your congregation reacted to this rise in anti-Semitism in New York City? So there's the emotional response, which I'd like to speak to second, and there's the practical response. So we have spent an inordinate number of dollars, a very significant part of our budget, far beyond what we would have expected or budgeted to change security in our building. As I said, we operate a preschool. We have 100 kids in the building every day. We have 250 kids part of our religious school. So we have the youngest of the young. We have nursing kids. We have new moms. Our commitment is we have to provide security. So what we have done is we have increased our security officers. Uh, We've doubled our staff. We have started installing in one of our entryways bulletproof glass. Our windows are already blast resistant. We have security protocols to get into the building during the week. You have to have an ID, a synagogue-issued ID, or you have to have an appointment with an ID that you present to the outer security guard before you're allowed in. And yet we still want to be welcoming, right? So it's like finding this balance between, on the one hand, being very smart and making sure you have a reason for coming in the building, and at the same time making sure that's a very efficient, welcoming process so that when you are in the building, you're taken to the right place, and we know that you belong there. Not, not to interrupt, but let me say that when, when my congregation went to the synagogue to worship with them, there was, they were, we were surprised by that. And I had many members of my congregation who suddenly realized this is really real and this is really frightening. 
and I should have recognized how hard it is. Mm-hmm. One of the surprising consequences of of sharing worship with one another was recognizing the 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 painfulness of anti-Semitism and the fear that you'd have to deal with that my people didn't recognize before. Yeah. So because sorry. you expect a house of worship to be wide open. We don't have right to do that at my mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't have to have guards at the right. door. And when you look at what just took place in, uh, in Germany, um, the only reason that that congregation survived on Rosh Hashanah was that uh, the Sochnut, the Jewish agency in Israel, had provided funds that allow that congregation to reinforce that door. Uh, otherwise, that kind of, I, I received an email from someone who worshipped with us who has a colleague who was in the congregation as this was taking place. We also now have NYPD's paid detail. That means a armed, uniformed officer standing visible outside the synagogue every Friday night and at every bar bat mitzvah. We don't want to have to do it, but we have to do it, and it works. There is more that needs to be done. The organized Jewish community uh, has been doing research about what works, what doesn't work. We haven't stopped doing what we do. We still believe that Jewish life is lived joyfully and affirmatively. We believe there are far, far more people who stand with us. I mean, I'd love for those listening to know that it's my belief that the vast majority of those in New York are our allies. The vast majority of people in the U.S. are our allies. They stand with us. We know that. But we also know it only takes one crazy person with a weapon. Um, And we have to think about how people have access to those weapons and where they're getting hyped up. Uh, So that leads into whole discussions about Internet and what's being said. Again, we've chosen to commemorate the events in Pittsburgh uh, a week from this coming Shabbat on the uh, Hebrew anniversary, uh, which means that the Torah cycle reading will be the same one that it was in Tree of Life congregation, which is the story of Abraham welcoming the angels, welcoming strangers. If you recall, part of what the shooter despised about Jews and synagogue life, and and that synagogue was the affiliation with HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the notion that we take care of immigrants because once we were immigrants, uh, and our dedication to making our homeland, to making America a welcoming land for new immigrants. How common is what's happening between your congregations in this country, would you say, the fact that you two are working together, you're having these interfaith services? I think it is more common than you realize and less common than we wish it was. I think that this happens in a, in a lot of places with a lot of people, but it's not news. And, um, you know, we, we would, we're glad it's not news. There's some common values. There's some ways in which hopeful things happen in places of worship every weekend. People declare that there is a joyful way of life. I think it happens constantly and not enough. Yeah, so talk more about how religion can be a source of hope in the midst of something like this. Well, back back to Serge's comment, the great majority of Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Christians live in, in great harmony and religious faith has these resources for how we're supposed to live as good neighbors. And no, no place better than Brooklyn. I want to make a pitch for Brooklyn because Brooklyn is diversity. You know, if you want to look at what the future could look like, 
yes, we've fallen down a little. Yes, we have issues going on in Borough Park. We need to address that. But there are so many places in Brooklyn. In our little bubble of Brooklyn Heights, we have a Maronite Cathedral. That's Lebanese Catholic. We have the Dawood Mosque, which is the oldest incorporated mosque in New York City. Um, we've got a Greek Orthodox Cathedral. We've got Plymouth Church. We've got three synagogues. Uh, it's a remarkable place where people know one another, and they stop, and they talk. When we talk about the, the Interfaith Clergy Association, we all know one another. My kids break fast at, uh, to celebrate Iftar at the mosque. There's a community night where we're invited. The synagogue opens up. We have a night of Iftar. I've prayed more, more prayer services with the bishop uh, over at Our Lady of Lebanon, the Maronite Cathedral for Peace in the Middle East. It's what could be if the world would embrace diversity. Uh, there's a great surah in the Quran, which I love to quote, that I learned from the imam, which says, God created us of many languages and many nations so that we would become intrigued by one another and reach out and get to know one another. And to me, that notion that diversity is beloved by God, that we should be intrigued by one another and want to know more about one another, is the very best of the religious impulse. What kinds of questions do you get from your youngest congregants about this? Are they asking questions about what's happening in the community? They see it, I'm sure, in the news. They hear it from their parents, I would imagine, talking about it. I, th I think it's hard for some someone my age, and I'm, and I'm older than Serge, so I seem so much younger. So <laughs> I, I think we spent most of our time talking about the evils that surround us, and the religious communities have a responsibility to point out the things that are wrong and to speak out against them and to be strong. Our resources are also such that we're supposed to be pointing out the hope that surrounds us. We're supposed to be paying attention to the possibilities for love and joy and peace and kindness and patience. And as an old guy who preaches to people much younger than me, I find myself in New York, back to that point, drawn to pointing to the good life more than trying to move people away from uh, the, the ways in which we fall short. I think there is an exuberance and a, a loveliness about a, a spiritual understanding of watching the world for the good that is in it. That I mean, I think religious communities do that. And I think young people in particular, they no longer need their religious communities to tell them that the world is hard. They, they've figured it out. They do need their communities to say, here's a way to hope. I think for the progressive American Jewish community, the last year has been incredibly difficult. Those of us who are just old enough to remember normative pre-1980s events of anti-Semitism, look, I grew up in New York. I remember being called a kike. I can remember these kind of um, modest uh, events that seemed semi-normative. What, what you learned as a Jewish kid was this is the price of being Jewish, that anti-Semitism was out there and you had to stand strong uh, and there was a community that would stand behind you and the police were there to protect you or arrest people. And so we took, you know, I was part of, I think, the last of that generation that sort of knew anti-Semitism was there. It wasn't nearly as bad here in America, which was a blessed land compared to Europe, um, you know, almost night and day. And then there's this entire generation that was raised in the 80s and the 90s and the aughts where 
literally it felt as if anti-Semitism had evaporated. It was purely something that was a history book event that we no longer had to worry about. And for those families and their children now, the world has been turned upside down. All of a sudden, it's as if a mythical beast who you, you know, your parents talked about but you thought wasn't real had shown up. And here it is. And your child says, what's happening? And are we going to be safe? And you're a parent in your 30s. And what do you say to your child? Because what do you say to yourself is ultimately the question. So it's, it's a difficult time. I think we're all trying really hard. There is a mix of this is this is an exceptional country, even with Pittsburgh, even with Poway. America is exceptional in the Jewish experience. And I do believe that, by the way. I believe, here's the real difference, when Jews have been attacked in Berlin, when Jews have been attacked in Argentina, uh, it has almost been in silence. You have some official who gets up there and gives you a report, but what you don't see is you don't see leadership and neighbors coming forward and standing as allies. What you saw in Pittsburgh, what you saw in Poway, were non-Jewish neighbors, friends, comrades. Um, I mean, the Pittsburgh Steelers, right, came on out. Uh, that says something about what's unique and best about America. And that's what I say to my kids. We have allies who are going to stand with us. It's not just on us. I think every week we have this opportunity in our religious communities to argue for equal rights, for, for, for women, for gay people, for immigrants, for minority opinions. And I think we can do so believing that most people want the best for most people. So I'm hopeful. I remain committed to that, that notion that comes down to me through my tradition, to look for the divine in every other person, not just at their best moment, but also at some of their worst. Serge, thank you so much. Thank you, George. Brett, thank you. Thanks. Brett Younger is the senior minister at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights, and Serge Lip is the senior rabbi at Brooklyn Heights Synagogue. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening.